Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week I have laryngitis, so I'm bringing you the Animal Special from 2007. Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. This is a special edition of Diffusion. We're going to do animals. We just love them. We're going to do pigs. We're going to do fish. We're going to do platypuses. We're going to do worms. We're going to do a whole bunch of animals. So sit on back and enjoy. But first of all, with every Diffusion uh, edition, we have, a f- we have first, of course, the news with Patrick Ruby. <laughs> Soap smells bad to fish. A report published by New Scientist shows that while soap can separate grime from our clothes and bodies, it can also separate fish from each other. The chemical culprit is 4-nonylphenol, or 4-NP for short. It overpowers the natural smell signatures that fish exude. This makes it difficult for fish to recognise members of their own species and form shoals. The discovery was made by a team of researchers led by Ashley Ward at the University of Sydney. They were studying social organisation in killfish found in North American lakes. 4NP is a lipophilic compound, meaning it sticks to oily or fatty surfaces like fish scales. Because of this, the scientists think it might coat the fish exposed to it, changing their chemical signature. If the chemical signature is changed, the social status, reproductive state and genetic makeup of a fish cannot be recognised by others. If fish do not recognise each other, they are less likely to reproduce properly form social networks, and are more likely to be eaten by predators because they don't shoal. 4NP is widely used in soaps, sewage treatment, and some pesticides, and eventually finds its way into our waterways. In developed countries, the maximum permitted concentration of 4NP in waterways is between 0.5 and 1 microgram per litre of water. Ward tested fish in aquariums containing 1 microgram per litre of 4NP. He found that this concentration still made fish stay at least twice as far away from each other as uncontaminated water did. The scientist claims that these results show even if the chemical isn't directly lethal, it still causes a lot of damage. We have to rethink our levels of chemical effluent. Hunting pigs could spread disease. Recreational hunters are illegally transporting feral pigs across Australia. This is according to Dr Peter Spencer, an animal researcher from Murdoch University in Perth, in an article published in ABC Science Online. The pigs could potentially carry livestock diseases such as foot and mouth, and even diseases lethal to humans such as Japanese encephalitis. Pigs could be collected from several hundred kilometres away and brought to one spot where they are shot for sport. Dr Spencer made the discovery by analysing the DNA from 1,000 feral pigs across Australia. Feral pig clans don't naturally mix with each other, which is good because it means diseases are contained. Pigs from genetically different clans have been found in the same area of Western Australia, suggesting that they have been physically transported there by humans. 
Dr. Spencer, whose research has been discontinued due to lack of funding, claims that this is a big biosecurity threat to Australia. He has called for stricter regulation and better policing of feral pig movements as populations can range over 100,000 square kilometres. Dr. Mike Bond of Animal Health Australia has responded to Dr. Spencer. He welcomes the research and the need to maintain population boundaries, but says that policing the pigs would be an enormous challenge. Platypus ancestors might have been swimming with the dinosaurs. The egg-laying mammal, Tenolophus trussleri, holds the key to this claim. It was an ancestor of platypuses and echidnas. Paleontologists have been collecting fossils of the extinct mammal and have dated them as being 120 million years old. Until now, scientists believe that platypuses had evolved much later than this because of a rather special feature. The research, led by Professor Timothy Rowe of the University of Texas, used a high-resolution X-ray CT scanner. It found a large internal canal in the fossil's lower jaw. Today's platypuses have this too. It is filled with 40,000 thickly coated neurons. They detect electrical signals given off by prey, such as tadpoles, shellfish and bugs when they swim. As it is a very complex anatomical structure, scientists assumed it had evolved relatively recently in the animal's history. So how did platypuses survive the extinction of the dinosaurs? Dr. Kenneth Angielczyk, assistant curator of paleomammalogy at the Field Museum in Chicago, believes he has the answer. Platypuses wouldn't have been strong competitors with other carnivores in dinosaur times, but they would have been versatile enough to survive when the environment changed and wiped out the stronger competitors. In typical Aussie style, we back the underdog. It's always struck me as odd that some of the many animals that we hear about with their revolting habits and terrifying appearances haven't achieved greater infamy as monsters in our campfire stories. When it comes to mythology, we're just as guilty of making up fictitious monsters as we are of maligning real ones. Perhaps it's because a lot of these really scary creatures are small and the human concept of monsters requires that they be large, like this. <coughs> So tonight I'd like to talk about an animal that has been sadly overlooked when it comes to frightening our kids and ourselves. Consider the name Eunice Aphrodite. Isn't it a lovely name, so musical and lyrical? Well, this beautiful name is attached to a seriously ugly and frightening animal. Eunice Aphrodite is an errant carnivorous marine polychaete, which means that it's a free-swimming oceanic worm which eats other animals. Eunice is a raptorial feeder, which means it seizes its prey like an eagle. Unlike an eagle, it doesn't use talons, but, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's take a broader look at this animal before we get to the good stuff. Both common earthworms that we find in our gardens and marine polychaetes that we find in the sea belong to the animal phylum Annelida, which comprises the segmented worms. The great French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck named the phylum Annelida when he noticed the little rings separating the segments of these worms, and he remembered that the Latin for little ring was annelus. However, unlike earthworms, errant marine polychaetes don't have smooth cylindrical bodies for pushing through soil. They have flattened, undulating bodies for swimming. Along their flanks, they have bundles of long bristles, or chaetae, emerging from the lateral or side walls of each segment. Their parapodia, which are leg-like extensions of the body wall from which the keti emerge, are much larger and fleshier than the almost non-existent parapodia of earthworms. 
This all makes sense when you consider that earthworms need to have smooth flanks for burrowing, while Eunice needs fleshy paddles for swimming. So the overall picture of Eunice so far is of an undulating, dorsoventrally flattened, rather spiky-looking worm. But it's only a worm, I can hear you cry. Well, it's very true that Eunice Aphrodite is a worm. It's also a mobile, carnivorous, scary-looking worm, the largest specimen of which was found right here in Sydney when two scuba divers turned over a rock and found one three metres long. And even then, you don't really know how scary it is until you put one under a dissecting microscope and look at its mouth. Remember the alien films with the large intergalactic bipedal lobsters with irreversible jaws? I'm pretty sure that Mr Geiger, who designed the alien, got the idea from looking through an invertebrate zoology text for scary-looking creatures and found one when he came to a chapter on polychaetes. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. The jaws of Eunice Aphrodite, when seen up close, are some of the most terrifying raptorial and masticatory organs ever evolved. An errant polychaete seizes its prey by everting its pharynx. What this means is that the worm turns its mouth and part of its throat inside out, exposing up to four fearsome-looking jaws. When the worm isn't feeding, the jaws lie inside the throat, or pharynx. When the pharynx is everted, frequently with explosive force to grab the victim before it swims away, the jaws are now at the very front, or anterior end of the animal, and just in the right position for grabbing prey. Frequently, these jaws contain poison. So next time you think it's safe to go back in the water, forget about sharks. You might just find yourself in a savage twist of irony, worm bait, and don't say, I didn't warn you. That was Lachlan Watmore with Eunice Aphrodite. Sounds pretty scary, Loch. So, um, I know, I know that that's going to be in some of my nightmares from now on. Oh, that was the idea, matey. You know, uh, as uh, you know, Halloween is coming up, and uh, Diffusion uh, usually likes to do a bit of a Halloween special. So that's uh, in tribute to Halloween. Um, I always like to do this time of year. I like to do a bit of a scary animal story. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun doing that sort of stuff because it's uh, amazing what, you know, creatures you've got that, you know, really can be quite frightening that Hollywood hasn't discovered yet. I know. I mean, the description you gave about it reversing its jaw when it feeds, that's, that's pretty terrible. That sort of reminds me a little bit about, have you seen, um, I know this is, a, this is a different class of animal, but have you seen the, the movie The Fly? Yes. So you get, um, yes. Where he where he uh, vomits his digestive juices all over his victim. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty terrible. That, I mean, that's that's also sort of a hollow a Halloween type feel. Yeah, I, I think uh, in that case it's called um, uh, exogenous digestion. 
well, you, you digest your, your meal outside your um, outside your actual body before you suck it back up. Uh, there's a whelk actually on the rock platform and on Australia, right here in Australia, on New South Wales rocky coasts, called Morola marginalba. It's one of several whelks we've got, and it crawls up to a barnacle, drills a hole into it, and then vomits its digestive enzymes inside the barnacle shell, turns it into soup, and then sucks it all up for its meal. Yum 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 yum. yum. Oh, I feel like Hannibal Lecter right now. What a way to eat, eh? Yeah, well, you know, it's a living. <laughs> so going back to the worm, good yeah. old Eunice. Eunice. Um, I found it particularly scary, the fact that those those divers found a three-metre-long one. Was it at Sydney Harbour, you said? I don't uh, know a great deal of detail about it. Um, I got this information... Uh, quite some time ago, actually, and it just sort of, you know, sunk into my consciousness. Um, if I remember correctly, I was speaking to an actual professor of uh, zoology, uh, who it was. I'm sorry, I can't remember. It was some time back. Uh, but no, they were saying, yes, uh, it's uh, sort of an- more anecdotal than, than theory. Uh, but yes, uh, some scuba divers uh, somewhere in the Sydney region you know, turned over a rock and there was a specimen of Eunice. Over, it was actually over three metres long. Polychaetes come, you know, in a range of different uh, forms as well. It's not just the errant ones, but there's also all the tube worms. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go down to rock platforms, you'll see crusts of Galliolaria. Um, they're these great. They sort of look uh, vaguely like coral, except when you look closer, they're in tubes rather than in a little scepter. And uh, Galliolaria put out little feeding fans. Um, if you go up to the Barrier Reef, you'll find Christmas tube worms, um, Christmas tree worms. I'm sorry, they live in tubes as well, and they put out these beautiful feeding fans with these little cilia on them to suck in. Uh, organic particulate matter and um, they're quite lovely because they come in a variety of colours in one particular colony so they look like the baubles on a Christmas tree but it's yeah it's the errant polychaetes the free swimming carnivorous guys kind of like these little snakes of the invertebrate world that um, yeah kind of cool I like them very scary I mean when I was listening to your feature I was thinking about other animals that I find fairly scary um, say, if you, have you ever seen those pictures where you look up closely at a cockroach and you look at the, the head of a cockroach <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Under, a, under a microscope or a field microscope or whatever you might use, and it looks hideous? Oh, look, uh, back during the Roman invasion of Carthage, I once studied some entomology and um, the, I dissected a cockroach's mouth. And the number of mouth parts of, of many insects, insect mouth parts are incredibly complicated. And that's where I think old uh, Geiger might have taken a bit of a leaf out of that book as well. Because you remember those, uh, the jaws of the alien in the alien mm-hmm. movies. Yeah. And also, you know, those things, you know, remember the Predator? The Predator, predator films, The Predator, yeah. yeah that's with what those, I was thinking of too. Well, that, that would sort of uh, remind you slightly of Eunice, actually. If, if, the predator could, if the Predator could evert his pharynx with those four sort of, you know, uh, quadrant type uh, teeth and everything, he'd look a bit like uh, Eunice Aphrodite. Oh uh, gosh. So, yeah. <laughs> a living stalking Eunice. Yeah, exactly. Hunting, with, with, hunting a nu- humans with, with a nuclear weapon in his wrist guard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you imagine that? A nuclear armed uh, errant polychaete. Yeah. Even <laughs> even dust mites look pretty look pretty awful when you look at them close up. It sort of makes you a little bit scared when you go into bed, I suppose, that millions of these little things are crawling around. With their little mouths. With their little mouths open looking for a meal. Exactly. But Mind you, I'm sure they look very, very beautiful to other dust mites. I'm sure they do. It's in the eye of the beholder, mate. Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, 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 ha.
You're listening to Diffusion, the international science show brought to you on podcast around the world and across Australia on the Community Radio Network and right here in the Sydney metropolitan region broadcasting on 2SER 107.3. After Locke's rather grisly look at one of the aliens of the animal kingdom, I thought I'd check out some of our more domestic friends. How many of us have got a pet at home? I've got a cat myself. His name's Felix, and he likes doing some pretty odd things for a cat, like drinking water straight from the tap and jumping in the clothes dryer just when you're about to put your wet woolies in. But despite these quirks, or maybe because of them, I love my pet, and millions of people around the world would say the same thing about their own pets. Animals can make us feel good about ourselves, and research has shown they can also be good for us. There are lots of diseases where the presence of a friendly animal has proven to be good medicine. These can include hypertension, mental and behavioural disorders, and even physical injuries. Studies published on the website anthrozoology.org have shown that sitting silently for as little as two minutes with an unknown but friendly dog can reduce the blood pressure of older people with hypertension. Less stress means less chance of a heart attack or stroke. In America, dogs have been taken into hospitals for patients recovering from heart problems and have similar effects. Again, doctors think the calming effect of having animals around reduces blood pressure and eases the work of your heart, something that's very important if your ticker isn't in such good shape. This type of treatments are known as animal-assisted therapies or pet therapies. A lot of volunteer-based organisations are providing the treatments. Dogs seem to be the most popular proven therapy, but cats, horses and even fish can have positive effects on our health. In Australia, the Delta Society Australia and Velma's Pets as Therapy are examples of these organisations. The Delta Purina Pet Partners are working with the Children's Hospital at Westmead, Sydney in a plan to rehabilitate children with brain and spinal cord injuries. The plan involves integrating the work of doctors, physiotherapists, occupational therapists and play therapists with volunteer pet partner teams. Rehabilitation for children with these injuries is often laborious, repetitive and painful, but it is hoped that the presence of a pet will distract them from the pain. They are then motivated to rehabilitate more successfully. Animal-assisted therapies already target hospitals, mental health units, nursing homes and schools. In April this year, almost 600 pet partner teams went to residential care facilities in several Australian towns, ranging from Hobart to Townsville on the coast, and going as far inland as Orange and Bathurst. Quite a big job for our four-legged friends to take on. The presence of a pet in school, in particular, has a positive effect on children's behaviour. It can help them interact with each other better, even if they don't have the same level of interest in the pet. They avoid aggressive or hyperactive behaviour and become more socially cohesive. So a pet can be good for kids at school, even if they're not animal lovers. So how do you pick the right pet? Well, for volunteer pets at the Delta Society Australia, the selection process is quite tough. They have to put up with yelling, bumping, crowding, staggering, gesturing and being clumsily petted. If they make it through the testing, their owners go through their own training before being assigned to teams. A new team is accompanied by experienced volunteers on their first few visits to show the ropes. So there you have it. Your pet could be a doctor, psychiatrist, physiotherapist and school counsellor rolled into one. For more information on animal-assisted therapy research, visit www.anthrozoology.com. 
org, or Google Pet Therapies to find out more about organisations like Delta Society Australia. Somehow, however, I don't think my cat Felix is quite what it takes for this type of work. Animal-assisted therapy is not the only way animals can help us in medicine. Often we use them in a more icky way to help us when we're sick. For thousands of years, humans have lived with animals and used them for traditional medicine remedies. The medicines were, and still are in many countries, taken from parts of their bodies, things made by them like nests and cocoons, and even things coming out of their bodies, like bodily secretions and excrement. Hopefully none of you were eating when I mentioned that last bit, and if you were, you probably aren't anymore. The use of products derived from animals as therapeutics is known as zootherapy. It can be classified as alternative medicine, and some of it sounds pretty crazy to us, like using earthworms as a spermaticide and crocodile penis as an aphrodisiac. But some of it has also been proven to work scientifically. Snake venom gave us the idea for the drugs known as ACE inhibitors. They lower your blood pressure and can be used to treat people with hypertension. Captopril, one of the biggest selling pharmaceuticals in the world, is an ACE inhibitor. Leeches, once a medieval cure for just about anything you could think of, do actually have some medical benefits. Compounds in their saliva are being studied for use as anticoagulants for your blood, vasodilators for blood pressure, and even local anaesthetics. Even Aussie animals are in there. Emu oil has been used by Indigenous Australians for thousands of years. It contains omega-3, omega-6 and omega-9, which have potential skin protective and pain prevention functions. Crocodile blood and tamar wallaby milk contain compounds that are powerful antibacterial agents and could possibly be developed as new antibiotics. This may be all well and good for us, if it works, but what about the animals themselves? Both Western and alternative medicines have received a bad rap in this sense, and a lot of it is well-deserved. In Western medicine, pharmaceuticals are mostly derived from natural products, but are recreated synthetically in the lab. Once a product is synthesized, there is little further use of the original organism it comes from. But let's not forget, lab animals are still killed by their millions in medical science research. Whether you're for it or against it, it's still a big issue in medicine. In traditional medicine, poachers and traders have depleted the wild populations of many species of animals, including tigers, rhinoceroses and seahorses, to the point where they are threatened or even endangered with extinction. It is potentially a much bigger problem than our issues with animal testing, because it decreases biodiversity. This could have a big impact on the environment, other species and even us. Many countries have banned trade in endangered species, yet it is a difficult thing to enforce. Some scientists in Brazil are asking for a different approach. A review of traditional medicines, published in the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine, is one of a group of papers making a case for sustainable zootherapy. Its authors claim that globalization, acculturation and increased populations are destroying native animals. Animals are seen more as a commodity to be exploited for maximum short-term gain and are no longer a spiritual symbiote of man. If the animals are all wiped out, it's bad for them. But it's also bad for us, because we will have lost a sustainable resource for medicine.
So what's the answer? Well, one solution is to go back to the traditional farming methods with a scientific approach. This is what Araldo Costaneto suggests in a review written in the Annals of the Brazil Academy of Sciences. Indigenous communities should manage and farm their animals using a combination of traditional folk practices and modern scientific techniques and regulations. This could ensure medicines are harvested in the best way with the least amount of harm to the animals. The community should be given control of farming industries and retain intellectual property rights over their traditional knowledge. If they are paid properly for providing animal medicines, the industry can be made sustainable. Keeping animal biodiversity high in this way helps conservation efforts. It also helps preserve indigenous cultures and practices. So traditional icky medicines could actually help prevent animal extinctions. If you want to learn more, go online and visit PubMed to freely access journals on zootherapy. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that our high and low tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. It's been proven to be true, like one and one are two. It's checked and double-checked, a fact that can be backed. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact that there are belts of radiation in outer space which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome. It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. And that's all we've got from this edition of Diffusion, the international science show. This show has been produced and panelled and well, basically championed by the amazing Patrick Ruby, who prefers to be called Pat, but sometimes we call him Patty. And who am I? Well, what more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore. And that's all we've got from Diffusion. If you want to get through to us on the uh, website... It's Diffusion Radio. It's Diffusion Radio, yeah. www.diffusionradio.com. And if you'd like to get through to us on email, uh, f- uh, email us on at to, uh, diffusion at 2ser.com. Uh, That's all we've got, so thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha.